to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. As always, we are talking about how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County, and since today we will be talking a little bit about charter changes, it definitely shakes out for Wyndham County. Joining me this week is regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Hello, Olga. And Ted Brady, who some may know from the agency of, oh no, I'm going to, community. No, you got it. Con- Commerce and community, community development. development. ACCD. But today, as of now, is the new executive director for the Vermont League of Cities and Towns. So glad you can join us, Ted. Oh, thanks, Olga. And thanks, Emily. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited to, to be here because one reason Emily and I wanted to reach out to you is because, and personally, I am always fascinated by our ethos in Vermont around local control and how much we pride ourselves on that. And I think it does build really strong communities. But at the same time, we are technically a Dillon's rule state, meaning a lot of the power lies with the, the, at the state level. And to me, that always feels like an interesting contrast. And I'm wondering, Ted, from your perspective, if you can illuminate for listeners a little bit more about that, those two realities and the, that tension. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks. Uh, first, I think the most uh, important and uh, salient thing to remember is what makes Vermont so incredible is how we have, you know, 251 uh, real unique places. And they, the sense of place, the sense of character is what makes unique, makes Vermont so unique and great and why uh, you can go to Brattleboro and have a completely different experience than when you go to St. Albans or St. Johnsbury, right? Those places really reflect the people that have made those places. And that comes from select board members, that comes from volunteers on planning and zoning commissions, that comes from generations of people giving time to their local communities. Uh, and so you're right. I think Vermonters really pride themselves on that local unique flavor. And it is reflected in town meeting, right? The most kind of Vermont and Rockwellian image of democracy is that town meeting image of Vermonters uh, determining the future of their own community when they go and vote. But as you said, that's not the reality. The reality is a lot less uh, Rockwellian. And the reality is that most times you vote in a local election, uh, there's an audit that occurs at the state level. Uh, whether it happened before you voted or after you vote. In the case, when I say before, I mean any power a town has in a state like Vermont, at one point or another, either the founding fathers of Vermont through the Constitution enumerated those powers to your community, or uh, at some point, the legislature granted you that power as a local community. And that Dillon's Rule concept is really uh, quite common across the country. A lot of states have some form of that Dillon's Rule. Dillon's Rule refers back to a an Iowa Supreme Court justice from uh, centuries ago who kind of made a ruling, ruling on this topic that really a town needs to have its powers enumerated. So uh, you're right, uh, Vermonters uh, aren't quite doing as much local as we think we are. Uh, and that's something the Vermont League of Cities and Towns really wants to educate people about and also uh, change when possible. Yeah. And so for listeners who want to go into the archives to learn more about this topic, we had a conversation about a year ago, I think, with town manager Peter Elwell. I think this was a pre-pandemic real-life conversation in the studio that we had with him. So maybe it was two years ago. And we 
talked very specifically about Dylan's rule and very specifically about charter changes. And then since, as we were sort of looking at the limited, some limited self-governance um, work that the Vermont League of Cities and Towns had done. And then more recently, we had a conversation about Brattleboro's proposed charter change, specifically around youth voting as that passed the house and is now sitting in the Senate. But today we have you here because there are two charter changes that passed both the House and Senate that are not Brattleboro charter changes, but I think um, are very important topics to Brattleboro voters. And that is charter changes in Winooski and Montpelier that allow non-citizens to vote in local elections. And those charter changes passed in those communities by a majority vote of Vermont voters, town voters in those towns, and then passed the House and the Senate, and then the governor vetoed it. And today the legislature is reconvening um, with the intention of overturning that veto. And so we're here today to talk about charter changes writ large and local control writ large, but all and to welcome you into your new role, Ted, congratulations. But also very specifically because we have these sort of charter changes um, that we're looking to overturn the veto. And interestingly, I think, last sentence here, um, the governor in his remarks around why he vetoed the charter change said he didn't think this particular law had been debated enough. Right. Which, which I found so particularly <laughs> I found that particularly interesting because of anything that gets debated, a charter change gets sort of triple debated. Um, right. A regular law that local, the state, and then finally the governor. Yeah. Absolutely. And a regular law just sort of goes through the legislature. This one got all its time in the sun in the in its own town. That's sort of where we are in our evolution on the Montpelier Happy Hour on this topic, but I'm sure a lot of listeners are joining us for the first time. And I'm it's a really complicated issue how we sort of balance town and state dynamics. Mm -hmm. Sure. So spot on. Uh, these two charter changes that the legislature is convening today to consider uh, overturning those vetoes, those two are only two of 11 charter changes that Vermont community sent to the legislature this year. I like to say these two charter changes are unicorns because you don't see them too often. Two charter changes that made it through the legislative process. And I believe this is the first time uh, in anybody here at the League of Cities and Towns memory, including Steve Jaffrey, who is an executive director here for 20 some odd years or 30 some odd years, it's the first time we think a governor has ever vetoed a municipal charter change. So it's historic, but it's also historic because, well, you know, the old saying, it's an honor to be nominated. Well, uh, it's rare that charter changes make it through the legislature. Uh, two out of uh, 11, this year, five out of 11, less than 50% charter changes were actually brought through the legislature. So when you talk about that kind of double jeopardy of democracy, you just talked about having to be double debated. Um, that Dillon's rule concept really puts municipalities in a disadvantage to, to get their charter changes done. Now, we're talking about two relatively high-profile charter changes today, right? Two non-citizen voting uh, charter changes that would allow non-citizen voters to uh, vote in municipal elections. Not in all statewide elections, not for governor, not for treasurer, not for state auditor. This is only for municipal issues. So they can vote on their budget. They can vote for the select board members. They can vote on, you know, whether or not to buy a new snowplow at town meeting. Those type of issues. Did it cover a school district as well, Ted? 
So it covers school districts, um, the Winooski School District, but not the Montpelier School District okay. because Winooski School District is exactly within its town boundaries. And it's one of the only towns that um, still has that construct. Gotcha. Thank you. But I think it's really important to note that the Winooski Charter is a good example of one. It didn't, it's not, it didn't go to the governor as the uh, members of Winooski wanted it to, right? Winooski voted two to one to send a charter change to the legislature. The legislature then debated that charter change and changed it and removed several things from the charter. Uh, so it's not quite the pure form of democracy we all like. However, like I said, these are two unicorns. It's rare for charter changes to get the light of day in the legislature. And when they do, we certainly hope they'll become law. So we're hoping that both of these charters uh, uh, receive enough votes to become law. Can you tell us a little bit about the League of Cities and Towns and their your sort of big picture role and then your role with regard to charters? Because I, it's possible a lot of people don't even know yeah. if the League of Cities and Towns exists. Thanks, Emily. I should have led with that. So we should have asked you to lead with that. <laughs> The Vermont League of Cities and Towns has existed for about uh, a little more than 55 years. And the purpose of the League, we're a membership organization owned by our members. And our members are our communities, the towns, cities, and villages of Vermont. 246 towns and villages, sorry, towns and cities. Not 251, because those gores don't have anybody to join and be our members. They don't have incorporated governments. But there's 246 cities and towns, and then plus another 138 units of municipal government, things like your villages, things like your fire districts, things like your uh, solid waste management districts, your regional planning commissions. And so we represent those uh, communities, and we do really three fundamental things. We educate our members. So when a new select board comes on, we hold trainings about town meeting, uh, about how to have town meeting, about open meeting law, about uh, the... Um, uh, uh, open, uh, I'm blanking on the name, right, but public, right to know. public yes. records. There we go. Public records uh, law. Uh, things along those lines. That's the one. one. Two, uh, we advocate for our communities, for municipal government at the state house and in Washington, D.C. And then three, and this is the thing that kind of, we, we serve communities by offering insurance products. So most communities in Vermont use the Vermont League of Cities and Towns uh, property casualty and workers' comp um, insurance program. So that's kind of the fundamental thing that we do here in Vermont. Thank you. So I think it would be a real surprise for a lot of folks um, to, to know that the, the legislature can edit the charter changes that, that get sent to them. In, in your experience, uh, Ted, and then also Emily, what kind of what form does these edits tend to take? I mean, is it because let me back up, you know, most towns before these charter changes even go on the ballot for a townwide vote at the local level, they're vetted by the town's attorney and the select board and the town clerk. And, and so they don't go cold to a townwide vote. So they're not going cold to the legislature either. So I guess that's why I'm, I'm kind of even asking, why would they even need to be edited? Um, so if, if either of you can kind of illuminate that at all, I'd really appreciate it. I'm sure Emily and I have a different opinion on this. <laughs> That's good. That is healthy. That's yeah. democracy. That makes the show more interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's a hard word to use because it denotes uh, so much. But I think in, in the League of Cities and Towns perspective, we think it's because there's a paternalistic relationship that the legislature believes it has over communities. Mm -hmm. That the legislature 
kind of knows best in these circumstances. And they'll, they'll take a political ideology lens sometimes. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's by circumstance or by chance that the two charter changes we're, we're looking at today are somewhat have progressive values behind them. You know, there's more conservative values uh, that are expressed in other charters. Barry City this year put forward a charter change that uh, uh, prohibited the flying of any flag on town or city owned land that was not a government issued flag, like an American flag or a Vermont state of, state of Vermont flag. Did that pass? It didn't pass. It oh, didn't good. Make okay, that's what I thought. Okay. But you look at those and you say, oh, there's two really two political ideologies, a lens there comes in from the legislature. And then that paternalistic thing is, is, oh, well, this might not be legal. Well, like you said, a town attorney has already looked at these. This The select board has uh, voted on these. The community has voted on these. And if there's one thing uh, we know is that lawyers can be wrong. I'm so certain of that because our founding fathers had to create an entire branch of government to settle the disputes between lawyers that were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know I'm going on along here, but one really interesting thing uh, that, that didn't pass from the Winooski Charter that is being considered today was a provision that would say, if a community wants to adopt a charter change that has been adopted somewhere else in the state, that it would automatically be allowed by the legislature. And the legislature removed that from the Winooski Charter, claiming it was not constitutional because an unelected attorney in alleged counsel told them it was likely unconstitutional, right? Uh, and so they did that based on, in that case, not ideology, but based on constitutionality. And uh, I think you, they, I think they're personally wrong in that circumstance, but that's what court systems are for. <laughs> Um, before you jump in, Emily, I'll just for context for listeners, Brattleboro, a few towns in Vermont put forward that charter change and Brattleboro was also one of them. And I have to admit, as a reporter who was covering that for the the paper, I kind of didn't think it was going to fly when it when it hit Montpelier. I, I will just be honest about that. Um, but just so folks in Brattleboro know that that is uh, one of their charter changes that that did not pass the legislature. So um, I agree that it is a very paternalistic attitude a lot of the time. Um, I don't think we'll disagree on that piece that sort of shapes how we discuss charter changes, what gets approved and what doesn't. When I've been trying to work on Brattleboro's charter change around youth voting, I'm like genuinely surprised at how often people seem to have opinions about things that have nothing to do with their own town. Um, <laughs> And then we also, you know, some of the editing and or, you know, it's called, it's technically called amending when we're doing it is, um, you know, with Brattleboro's charter change, when it came to the, when it was voted on by Brattleboro voters, the school district was a completely different shape. It was pre-Act 46 that it was like began its process in Brattleboro. And so we needed to amend it to actually just comply with sort of current law and the current shape of our school district and what voting would look like there. There are absolutely other cases where we are amending um, based on ideology or constitutionality. And I think this, um, the new attempt by the league around limited self-governance and these charter changes that are going forward in multiple states, I think is a multiple towns, I think is a really good example of that. One thing I really appreciate about elites of cities and towns, and I think really impacts the charter change process 
in Montpelier is that so many of our communities are very small and have very limited staffing capacity. Um, so I think in Brattleboro, it's hard for us to imagine how very tiny town government is in most of our towns because we have, you know, um, so many full-time staff who are professionalized, focused on this, have a career and sort of an entire professional association behind them when they're doing this work. Whereas in other towns, we have sometimes just a few part-time staff, sometimes even a single part-time staff and a teams that really depend on the league to serve really as supplemental staff for them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's really helpful for those towns, but it also means that sometimes things do come to the legislature that might not have had the level of legal vetting that they might have um, once they get there. And I think that's, I think in a best case scenario, we could see the um, charter change approval process as one of a collaboration um, and definitely most times it is an absolutely paternalistic relationship. The limited self-governance um, conversation and the bill that passed the Senate last biennium that the league was working on. And then I think Brattleboro's town manager, Peter Elwell was really, really involved in. Um, and that we were, I was working on, on the house side, I think was a really great next step in seeing sort of what happens when we release some of these bonds um, on local control. Are you talking about the pilot program? Yes, the pilot. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes. So it was a program that would set up sort of pilot towns that was based on a program that really worked in West Virginia, a law that worked very well in West Virginia, that would sort of allow for self-governance of cer certain communities who had gone through the ringer to sort of test out how it would work, and then maybe we could expand it to other towns. Um, and I think one of the things that's interesting about these things is how little money our towns have. And so you have sort of, we might give freedom, but not give funding. And right now we actually have funding to our towns too. So it's a really perfect time to test out what real self-governance looks like because it's hard to um, be free with no money. And so this time around, it sounds like the, le the league put forward this um, series of charter changes that were essentially the limited self-governance proposal, but in the form of charter changes as another way of pushing the conversation. And I'd love to hear more sort of about the league's thinking on that, Ted, because it was it was a surprise to me as a legislat legislator when our town passed that charter. Sure, I, I actually don't think it was the, the league's intention to kind of come up with another way, but I think the league did look to our communities and say, if you want to do something and, and make a change, you're going to have to do it through the charter process. And so I think the communities embraced that and started moving uh, some some more charter changes. But it's not you know it's very common for communities to send charter changes to the legislature. I mean, anytime a community wants to charge a local option tax, even though the local option tax is legal in uh, a dozen or more communities uh, already in Vermont, it needs to be done by the charter change because without that ability, without the legislature saying, "Oh, you can collect a local option tax X town," without that happening. The town can't do it. And so every time a community wants to change how they govern themselves, and this doesn't just mean who can vote, it also means the title of their town manager, the title of their human resources manager, 
put out a long list of things. If they want to change anything about their town, they have to come to the legislature and ask for permission to do that. So I don't think it was actually a, a, an intentional process to, to go about that. We'd still love to look at that pilot program. Another thing that pilot program did uh, was provide certainty that a charter change would be acted on by the legislature mm-hmm. by removing it from the political process and creating a panel of experts, including some legislators, that would look at the charter changes and then recommend straight up or down to the legislature that they should accept this to remove that ideological and that paternalistic issue that we face. So it does just come down to what Emily talked about was, you know, do are there some edits that need to be made for constitutionality or for um, a simple amendment process that, that needs to occur. So we'd love to remove that political side of it uh, to, to move forward. Thank you. We are at the end of the first half, which went so fast. Uh, so hang tight, everybody. The Mount Hillier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro will return in a moment. the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you are just joining us, I am speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps for Brattleboro, as well as the executive director of the Vermont League of Cities and Towns, Ted Brady. Welcome back to the show, both of you. Hey, Emily, what do we need to tell listeners? We need listeners to understand though we trust our listeners enough that they perhaps already understand this, that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests and not the station or the platform that you are using to listen to the Montpelier Happy Hour today. Lovely. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. Ted and and Emily, too, if, if you want to jump in on this. One thing I find interesting about Vermont and and one of the and Emily touched on this a little bit when she talked about tiny governments and resources. We are such a small state and some of our towns and cities have very professionalized governments with lots of resources. Some of our towns are are basically volunteer led in many respects. And it seems to me that sometimes one thing we struggle with to move get things done is this economy of scale. And, and how, do we, how do we actually move things forward in an effective, uh, efficient way? So I'm wondering for you, Ted, does that play into this tension between local control and state control at all? And is there a better way to balance, balance some of this and still make sure towns get their needs met? Sure. I undoubtedly think there's a better way to balance the tensions on uh, economy of scale. I think the most important thing about that, though, is that um, our our state looks to our communities to say, what would you like to do? How would you like to drive this bus? How would you like to define how you do work differently? I think we've seen with the school merger conversation that that has been painful and in many cases fruitless because it simply was not a ground up approach. And so I look around right now and I see communities talking about simple things, which this isn't going to solve the world, but it's going to solve some real practical problems like, well, maybe we shouldn't each buy a road grader. Maybe we should share a road grader. 
or things like, you know, this has become really hard to run this town without professional staff. Maybe we should share some professional staff. And I think that kind of groundswell will eventually get to the point where these communities say, maybe we can approach some of these other problems in a regional focus. When you get to policing, when you get to fire, when you get to planning and zoning, all of these things are really complicated things that you don't need to replicate 251 times. Um, but right now that's how we have them. And trying to do a top-down solution will break our systems and create, resi create resistance to a, an actual solution that could work. So I think we need to empower our communities to, to look at problems differently. Well, it Saying sounds things too, sorry, just quickly, Emily, it sounds too that one thing we don't have is we've got town or state. We don't have county level leadership or regional leadership at all. It almost feels like maybe a middle, a middle step might, might help things. I, I do think that there's a middle step. I think there is actually some county government, though, when you look at regional planning commissions, and regional planning commissions provide valuable services to communities across Vermont in a regional approach. The nice thing is the community chooses whether or not to use those services. The community opts in. The community is represented on that board. Whereas with county government, you know, that's just another layer. And I don't think anybody in Vermont is advocating to create a new layer of government. Uh, instead, we're really advocating for the layers we have to work better together to provide better services at a better value to the constituents. Thank you. Sorry, Emily, go ahead. No, I was going to say the same thing. It sounded like you were talking about sort of a local control driven development of something that looked like county government eventually, um, but that it would be sort of led from led from the communities rather than established by statute. It's it's a really interesting idea. It's, you know, when I look at the failures of Act 46, which were particularly messy down here in our region, as you might know, um, so much of that and the challenges were that the stated expectations of where decisions would lie didn't match up with the reality of who actually made the decisions in the end. And so parenting 101, management 101, good meeting governance 101, all say that like, just be clear about where the final decision lies and everyone will be okay. But don't ask for input, tell people that they have a say in what will happen and then not respect that, right? Um, and so, you know, and my son is often very, very happy with sort of, you know, being told what to do. It's really when I ask him his opinion and don't follow it that he gets particularly upset. Um, and I think that's true for all of us. So the charter change process, I think so many voters, at least in my community, aren't even aware that when they vote on a charter change in, their, mm -hmm. in our town, that it then has to go through the legislative process. And so it sets people up for the sense that they've made an impact, they've made a change, they've said yes to something, and then it doesn't get implemented and they don't even know what the holdup is or why. Hmm. That's a good point. And what a great, this is, goes back to that idea of democracy, right? Democracy is only democracy if when you cast the ballot, it has an immediate and uh, effective consequence. And right now, when you vote on a charter change due to our process, it really doesn't. Mm -hmm. it, it might. In some, circus, some circumstances, it might. And today, like I said, we might have two unicorns emerge out of the legislature that will have an enormous 
uh, impact, especially in a community like Winooski, where there are a lot of non-citizen people who will be given the vote, the right to vote for, uh, you know, whether or not their street gets plowed, whether or not they get a pothole filled, all these things that uh, don't impact, uh, don't don't care if you're a citizen or not. They need to get done. So it's an interesting approach to municipal government and trying to get more people involved in municipal government, which I think is a good thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that um, I've talked a lot about in the context of the youth vote, because that's the charter change that we're working on down here in Brattleboro for the most part, is um, that voting is a real voting in local elections is a real opportunity for people to sort of continue to commit to their communities, um, to feel that they belong to step in, to have a voice, to participate, and through that participation or through the research that they do for that participation or the conversations that they have for that voting participation, then they become further rooted in their community and feel a greater responsibility to that community. The community has trusted them with that decision, and so that so they then trust the community with other decisions about their lives. It becomes a much more mutual relationship, and that's incredibly important as we think about the kinds of Vermont communities we want to build, what um, not just what equity looks like in our communities, but even just making sure that people stay in our communities, whether that's youth or new Americans or whatever. It's also um, harkens back to sort of the history of non-citizen voting, which is fascinating. And I did not know until we started debating this charter change. So that's one nice thing about charter changes. I get to learn new aspects of the law. Um, so non-citizen voting was actually very common in American municipalities all across the country until the 20s and 30s, hmm. when a lot of um, when new waves of immigration happened and a lot of nativist rhetoric made its way into sort of the American popular imagination the way it is doing now. Um, and what's interesting is at that time, it was limited to white men who owned property, who voted. But it didn't matter if you were a white man who owned property and were a citizen or a white man who owned property and were not a citizen. Mm -hmm. And so all across the country, we had non-citizen voting in municipalities. Um, and what was important then was this um, sort of proof of rootedness, which was owning property. The thread that I see into today um, that I'm hoping that when we overturn this veto, we're really taking a stand on is that the process to become a citizen is incredibly expensive. And so sometimes when we debate this charter change, the rhetoric becomes about people being willing to commit to being a citizen and being willing to give up other citizenship, caring about America enough. But in fact, to even to be, um, to be an asylum seeker is actually a fairly expensive process, but to be, enter full citizenship takes years and years. It takes a tremendous amount of paperwork, a tremendous amount of patience and ability to navigate complex systems, but also costs a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about how we sort of limit the vote historically and how we've limited the vote today, I think by expanding to non-citizen voting, we're really taking an important stand about what it means to show up in a community and who should be able to do that. Thank you, Emily. Ted, what, what's your response to that coming from the municipal angle? Yeah, again, I, I go back to the principles of the charter change process. 
And if a community embraces what Emily just said and recognizes that they'd like to uh, to honor non-citizen voting for you know th these reasons, then we have a process that allows a community to make that change. And these two bills, uh, these two charter changes in Winooski and Montpelier made it through the gauntlet that very few of the charter changes do make it through. And so uh, I think that uh, recognizing the will of the people in the community is the ultimate form of democracy. And uh, I was unaware of the history of non-citizen voting uh, uh, and, and the concept that uh, this is something that municipalities have recognized in the past. That's a fascinating element. But I, I want to be clear. I hate to, I hate to be so dry on this, but I don't actually uh, have a dog in the fight about what these communities want to do. I have a dog in the fight that these communities want to do it. Mm -hmm. And if the communities make uh, a statement, and in these two cases, voters came out by margins of two to one in support of these two charter changes a select board or city council, in these cases, city councils, you know, supported these charter changes. They made it to the legislature. The legislature uh, supported these things. So the will of the people has spoken. And so these two unicorns deserve a shot to be set, set free and, and, and implemented. And as do the other uh, six charter changes that sit in house government operations right now without action. Um, and these things are not as uh, perhaps lofty and democratic ideals as dealing with voting laws. These are things like changing the name of, uh, you know, your, your lister to an assessor, changing, uh, you know, whether or not you're uh, able to, uh, the number of select board members in your, on your select board. These are, these are not controversial things in comparison. Thank you, Ted. Um, Emily, when when you look from your perspective as as a lawmaker um, at at charters and um, the powers they can have for for a town, um, do you feel? And I, you know what, this is for Ted too. Is there a way, do we need to do some groundwork with towns so that even they understand the process better? So maybe they can, you know, is there education that needs to happen so they could get their needs met better? Or is this really something that needs to change at the state level? I think it's a combination, you know, um, House, way, House um, Government Operations, which picks up the charters, has some really nice language. I don't know if it's on their wall or they just sort of review it at the beginning of each year, but it's basically says our responsibility as a committee is to examine these charters for constitutionality. And if they're constitutional, our job is to pass them and bring them to the full body for a vote. And that's the attitude that I have absolutely taken with charters, knowing though that I've actually never had to deal with a charter change that I had ideological challenges with. Um, and so I don't know if, you know, if that came to it, if I thought that a town's charter change um, was gonna cause real profound harm to some Vermonters. 
if I would sort of continue with this particular ideological bent that I have that, you know, the voters have spoken and that's it. I really don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think that I would, but who knows when the, you know, when the rubber hits the road. And so I think that there's a lot of work we could do within our body to um, really carry that message through the House and the Senate. Um, At the same time, I think towns could do some work, one, to make sure that voters understand the process that we have and that um, both some degree of patience is needed, but also some degree of collaboration with lawmakers, with regional lawmakers, um, to make sure that everyone sort of is putting the pressure and acknowledging the responsibility that's on those folks to be carrying that. Um, That because charter changes have to be passed as legislation, if I'm sort of carrying a charter change bill through the legislature, that might be giving, I might be then giving attention to that rather than another bill that's actually maybe more important to the lives of my constituents. And so we don't have unlimited energy. And so I've actually said that to some of my constituents before like, you know, if you pa- if you push this charter change, I want you to know I'm going to need to force like be focused on that rather than, say, housing issues, which I know you actually care about more than this little charter change. So I think that's a really sort of interesting part of the conversation in communities about asking sort of where should we each focus our attention and where should we focus our community's energy? Um, ideally, personally, I would really like to move further into the limited self-governance model because the number of things that need to be passed um, the number of changes that need to be made that go through the legislature is just completely absurd. Um, like the level of detail that needs to go through all this vetting is just silly. And so I really, uh, I really loved that bill that came through and passed the Senate around the limited self-governance pilot so that we can um, see that the sky won't fall in if we give communities back some of their power. Yeah, I'm not sure that it takes an education campaign. What Emily just said is really thoughtful and I think uh, uh, telling of the complexities of having a Dillon's rural state where things need to go through the legislature. I mean, imagine if every law the legislature passed had to be uh, double-checked by the Congress of the United States. Uh, We would get very few laws approved because there are so many competing interests down there. So I do sympathize with the complexities of having to deal with this. What is really hard is that there probably does need to be some sort of a change because when a town like uh, Springfield puts forward a charter change that eliminates the position of coal ware, one would think that there doesn't need to be much constitutionality check on that one and that those things should be able to move quickly. Or as I said before, if the legislature has deemed that the town of Williston can pass a local option tax, why does the legislature need to weigh in every time another town passes a local option tax? You know, there, there are these simple things that we could change. And there's debate about constitutionality. Yes, like I said before, though, lawyers can be wrong. Lawyers that are not elected are not representing the people of Vermont. And so you can challenge these things and move forward on these things. Um, and I think also I want to acknowledge that uh, the concept of fighting for home rule for all of Vermont, home rule, the concept that a town could do whatever it wants without checking with the legislature is not what I'm talking about today. I'm just talking about let's have a predictable process where things get up or down votes without uh, amending the, the, the things based on ideological or um, opinions. 
from from people who may have never even visited a community. I loved when Emily said that before at the beginning of the show, that uh, you know a lot of these people taking action on a community have absolutely no stake in that community. They're from far away places. They've never visited. They might not really understand the culture. And they might not also value that thing I talked about at the beginning, which is the best part about Vermont is that it's not the same as anywhere else in the world. And it's not, my town of Williston could not be any more different than the town of Brattleboro. And that's what I love about it. It's why I love going to Brattleboro. And I like to think it's why people from Brattleboro like coming up here. You know, there, there's, and, and it reflects the select boards of generations of Vermonters, all the way back to the statue of Thomas Chitton and down the road from my uh, from my house up to my select board today. My community reflects their values and their values reflect the community values. That's what's so great. One thing that I um, have said a few times to colleagues, you know, I think people worry about this slippery slope that like if Brattleboro passes this charter change, my town might pass the charter change too. And I say, oh, I'm like, I promise you what happens in Brattleboro is not going to happen in your town. Like, for better and for worse, we are our own special beast down here. And like, we are, you know, we have this super funny town government and like no one else has this super funny town government. I promise we will do it our own way. Let us do it. And it's not going to happen in your town. Mm hmm. And similarly, Brattleboro will never look like Williston, and that is fine. And I am so happy when I get to visit Williston. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, uh, in, in the newsroom, we have our weekly editorial meeting, and it's not uncommon for someone to start talking about a story they're working on and not say the town. They'll say, well, X, Y, and Z happened at the select board meeting, and they'll be like, oh, that must be Vernon. Oh, that must be Brattleboro. That must be Newfane. Because even just talking about what each town is doing is completely different from what another town is doing. And the way they handle it is always very different as well. Amen. And, and these towns, going back to another thing we talked about earlier, they have various degrees of capabilities based on professional staffing, based on volunteers. I think the other really important thing about municipal government is to understand that this is a volunteer-run uh, organization across the country, across the state, across the country, even in the places that have the most skilled town managers and city planners and these things, it's still run by volunteers that take time out of their schedules to go to bi-weekly select board meetings and make decisions for the town. And in some cases, then take that work home with them because they don't have somebody to put together the budget. They don't have somebody to put together the town report and they're doing it at their homes. Never mind, then take down the next level of town clerks. I think town clerks are one of the most underappreciated people in the history of the world because in towns that don't have professional staff, they literally do it all. In towns that do have professional staff, they're asked to literally do it all. Uh, and so these are such interesting, great people. And um, and they're, when, when we all come together to recognize that, I think great things can happen in our communities. I will take this opportunity to say, I believe that Brattleboro has the best town manager in the state. And I am so very sorry to see him go soon and very, very happy for him on his retirement and just want to take every opportunity I can between now and then to say thank you to Peter Elwell for the incredible work he's done in our town. And I think for the League of Cities and Towns as well, he's been in some pretty significant positions there. Peter is our vice president right now. And uh, whenever he speaks, the room goes silent and listens intently and uh, usually reacts immediately with 
some sort of, wow, I hadn't thought of that, or that's a great point. Uh, he's one of the best leaders in our, in our state. And we sure hope that after he takes a brief break, uh, he dials back in to help municipal government somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yes. We are just about out of time. And so I want to just throw this to you, Ted. What do you feel is given our conversation is really important to, to leave listeners with? The importance of municipal government in your daily lives and the importance of engaging with municipal government and the importance of holding people accountable for respecting that unit of government. Uh, this is where the rubber meets the road, uh, or I should say the asphalt gets put down on the road. Uh, this is where the road gets plowed. This is where, you know, uh, all these global issues that uh, we, we talk about think globally and act locally. Well, you go to your municipal government, and you ask them to tackle issues like equity. You ask them to tackle issues like climate change. And, you know, I don't see many governments or municipal governments around the state of Vermont saying no. Mm-hmm. Uh, take that in for a second and realize that uh, as tiny select board in the smallest Vermont town, a citizen comes forward and says, I want you to solve climate change. Amazingly, that select board nine out of 10 times says, okay, help us do it. You want to put up solar panels? You want to change our zoning bylaws to allow uh, for renewable energy? Let's do it. A community, somebody comes forward in a town and says, I am sick of systemic racism in this town. And this little select board with no, you know, support, with no professional training and equity issues says, okay, let's give it a shot. And they might get it right or they might get it wrong. But the idea that they step forward and say, we're going to give it a shot is amazing. Um, And then I just want to end it on this, which is uh, as we sit here today looking at these two charter changes that have been vetoed, as we said, a historic moment in municipal government government and in the legislative history. Just realize that the will of the people, when you go to vote on your town charter or anything else in your municipal election, it's a strange process here in Vermont. And we'd love to build a coalition of people that recognize that it's a strange process and and try to tweak it. Like Emily said, you don't need to throw out the entire concept of um, Dylan's rule, but you do need to tweak it as we get more modern. And that will allow us the ability to change the way we govern ourselves going forward to potentially get to that issue of scale, to potentially get to the equity issues, get to climate change issues, all these things, they're all connected. Thank you. Emily, any uh, comments as we end the show? I think Ted said that all really well, that we we have an opportunity. I should think we should toast to that, to all the people (laughs) Uh who show up in municipal government. Yes, I certainly couldn't do it. And I am so grateful for what they all do every day. You're here. Cheers. Cheers. So, Ted, if people want to find out more information about the Vermont League of Cities and Towns, where should they go for information? It's an easy one. VLCT.org, as in Vermont League of Cities and Towns, VLCT.org. Lots of information about home rule, what that is, Dylan's rule, what that is. Lots of information about the American Rescue Plan funding coming your way. Lots of webinars and trainings you could take about local government on things like open meeting law and public records law uh, and uh, history. Uh, subscribe to the Vermont League of Cities and Towns News, the VLCT News, which is a, an actual printed publication about hot topics in municipal government. Uh, there's a, a lot of great ways you can learn more about your government. And, and then I'd, I'd end it, if you really wanted to learn about what VLCT is, you know, volunteer, 
join your select board, uh, join your uh, planning commission, your zoning commission, your economic development commission, whatever it is, just get involved in your town. Thank you. Emily, if people want more information um, on your work, where can they find it? Well, before I answer that, I want to say if people want to sort of join in in Brattleboro specifically, there's a really great list of all of, we have an incredible number of town committees to dive into if you want to sort of start small or start with something that's your very specific interest. And those are all on our town website. There's also a town calendar that lists when all those meeting happen, meetings happen. Um, so if folks want to sort of jump in, my start in governance was on the human services committee of the town that reports to um, representative town meeting. And so lots of opportunities to get involved. And if folks want to run for select board and want to sort of talk about what campaigning looks like, I'm happy to support them, connect them with trainings or connect them with folks who have run. Um, and then to get in touch with me, you can go to emilykornheiser.org where you can find my email address, my phone number, links to all my social media feeds, and um, please be in touch. Thank you. And of course, you can find back episodes of the Montpelier Happy Hour at our website, montpelierhappyhour.captivate.fm. We're available on Apple Podcasts at WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro every Friday at 2, as well as BCTV and our Facebook page. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks, Thanks Emily. Thanks, Olga. Thanks, Thanks Ted. Ted. Oh,